BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The lab tests say she's negative, but her doctor called her positive. I'm not a COVID patient, should have never been labeled one. That would be an exceedingly rare situation. What the hell is going on? Classic COVID symptoms are fever, sore throat, a cough that won't go away. Not one time while I was hospitalized that I had any of those. There are still times when the person's history is more important than the labs. Is it fair to say that you were erring on the side of caution here? Yeah. I know that there's a lot of other people out there that are just like me. More than 5 million people around the world have been diagnosed with COVID-19. 1.5 million of them are here in the United States. And many health experts say the true numbers are probably much higher than that, because of a shortage of testing, especially in the early stages of the pandemic. But a woman from Markazin, Wisconsin says she thinks the numbers could be artificially inflated. That's because she tested negative for COVID-19 multiple times, but still left the hospital with a positive diagnosis. Since then, she's taken her story to social media, conservative talk radio, even a political protest in Madison. So what really happened? What does the doctor say? And how does a Broadway actor from Canada fit into the whole thing? From the Fox 6 studios, this is Open Record. I'm Amanda St. Hilaire, here with my colleague Brian Polson. Hey, good morning, Amanda. We are recording this episode on Friday, May 22nd. It is now the end of our 10th consecutive week of daily coronavirus podcasts. We started on a Wednesday, the day after St. Patrick's Day, so I think now, I might be counting wrong, Amanda, but I think this is our 48th special edition of Open Record. That sounds about right. I'm going to take your word for it, Brian. And we never set out to do a daily podcast, but we've been here day after day to help you sort through the crush of COVID-19-related news. It's far from over. There's going to be so much more to talk about in the coming weeks. But as we shift gears from crisis mode back to a more sustainable cruising speed, we do plan to pull back on these daily special episodes. So starting next week, we're going to release new episodes of Open Record every Tuesday and Thursday with the occasional special episode at other times as needed. And if you recall, before the pandemic ramped up here, we were doing a single weekly podcast recorded inside a dedicated studio at the television station, and then we got sent home to work remotely, and I wondered anyway if we were even going to be able to keep the podcast going. But Amanda, you and executive producer Sarah came up with the right mix of equipment. You came up with a way to combine Zoom with our individual audio recordings. And then, of course, our incomparable editor Dave Machuda has been at home making magic out of the pieces and scraps we give him each day. It really is an extraordinary effort to put this together. I'm honestly grateful to be a part of it. And I say that because I feel like I've just been the guy who's come in (laughs) and and talked each morning under a blanket, as we've talked about before, to get the the quality sound. I I wake up each morning, I come to my basement, and, and, and we do this. But the work you guys did just to devise how we could continue this podcast 
and, and actually ramp it up to a daily thing, I think is remarkable. I think you need to give yourself a little more credit, Brian, because this really, this has been a team effort and it's been an important part of our coverage. I think it's just as important right now that we are scaling back to two episodes a week, in part, if I'm being completely honest, because of the workload. We never set out, like we said earlier, to do a daily podcast. It's been an incredible amount of work, and I think for our own mental health, but also just to make sure that we're devoting as many resources as we can to bring you new stories each day, we need to balance making sure that we have the information available for you through this podcast, um, but also through the other means on TV and, and on our website. So I think we're coming down to a nice balance here. I think it also does reflect in it parallels nicely with the fact that the sort of emergency sense, you know, we know that the emergency orders have been pulled back and, and the sense of the crisis seems to be over. But we're not going to stop doing these podcasts. And even the two a week is more than we had been before because it, this isn't over. There's going to be a lot more to talk about in the coming days, weeks, months. Who knows how long we'll be talking about COVID-19. Absolutely. And I think that's a nice segue into today's topic because it was a pretty unusual one. What happened in the middle of your reporting on this story, Brian, is even more remarkable because it's, such, the a, least. it's such an uncomfortable coincidence. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later. But I want to start with Pam Scheneker. She's a small town mom. She has some health issues. And last month, she had a medical emergency that ended in a COVID-19 diagnosis that she now describes as fake. So the big question, Brian, what happened? Well, so you can't see in a podcast who we're talking about, but Scheneker is a 40-year-old mom, a wife. She's had asthma since she was at least a teenager. She also has heart problems. She has a collapsed lung, she says, from a hospital visit earlier in the year in January, which I'll talk a little bit more about later. But She's had a series of conditions that have caused her to visit the hospital more than a few times, let's say. So on April 16th, she was having what she described as an asthma and allergy attack. She felt that it's allergy season every year. It aggravates her asthma to the point that she has trouble breathing and, and she couldn't catch her breath. Her primary doctor said, you need to go to the ER. Well, she lives in a small town, Marcuson, Wisconsin, and for her, that meant a 45 minute drive to Columbus, Wisconsin, to Prairie Ridge Health Clinic. Once she got there, they administered a deep nasal swab in the ER to test for COVID-19. Of course, it was April 16th, so we're in the midst of this outbreak. And when people come to the hospital with severe breathing problems, the first thing they suspect is you have COVID. So they test her, they swab her. She says within a couple of hours, it comes back negative. Now, they admitted her to the intensive care unit because she was having such severe breathing issues regardless of the diagnosis. So she, the next morning, they, they say, we're going to test you again. And this time, the records show it was not for COVID-19, but for a whole list of other viruses, including several coronaviruses. Now, Pam says she was told this was also a COVID test. And when the results came back, they said, you don't have COVID-19. You also don't have these other things. The medical records show it was just a test for the other viruses, but we know she had a second nasal swab that came back negative. So they kept her in the hospital for a full five-day COVID-19 regimen anyway, and on day four, the doctor ordered a third nasal swab to test for COVID-19 again, and once again, that was negative. But when she was discharged from the hospital on April 20th, Scheneker's paperwork listed her as COVID-19 virus infected. So three tests, at least two of them for COVID-19. She says all three, she was told, were for COVID, but at least two of them were 
Three tests all came back with negative results. In the end, she believes it's just aggravated allergies, as she thought in the beginning, but she's got this diagnosis. So as a result of the diagnosis, did she have to quarantine? Did she have to do anything? Was she negatively affected in any way? Her paperwork doesn't say she has to quarantine, but she says the doctor told her she would have to. She would have to do the 14-day quarantine because of this diagnosis. Now, when she got home, she called her primary care doctor or within, you know, I don't know if it was in, within the first day or two, she calls the primary and she says uh, he told her based on the negative tests and based on her symptoms, he believed she was negative and, and did not need to quarantine. Again, I want to distinguish this is her primary care doctor who had told her to go to the ER in the first place, not the one who was at the hospital ordering the tests or diagnosing her. The primary, after at least a few days, says, you're fine. Your, net, your tests are negative. You're describing your symptoms. You don't have any of these other classic COVID symptoms. You don't need to quarantine. So the doctor at the hospital told her to. She says her primary told her that's not necessary. So I know her concern, as we talked about at the beginning of this episode, is that she thinks the numbers are artificially inflated because this particular situation happened to you. Did her case get reported to the state and to those official numbers as a positive COVID-19 case? Well, and that's one of the first questions I had for her the first time we talked. And at the time I first called her, she didn't know. She's since discovered. She talked to the health department in Green Lake County, which is where she lives, and in Columbia County, Wisconsin, which is where the hospital is. And she wasn't sure which one would get those results. She has now talked to both. And she says they've both told her they did not receive any positive test results. And without the positive test results, they would not have included her uh, as a positive case sent to the state. So her concern being there's an overcounting, the numbers are inflated, doesn't seem to be a concern here because she's not part of that overcount. Still, she's still un unclear why she was diagnosed this way, and she's not entirely certain that she trusts that she wasn't included in some way in those numbers. So how does this happen? How do all these negative tests come back and then a person walks out of the hospital with a positive diagnosis? And that was the main question I had, but I really want to step back for a minute and talk about how I got to talking to her in the first place, because one thing about Pam Schenecker, in addition to the fact that she had these number of health issues, is she describes herself uh, she has a Twitter account, self-described political activist. She's not afraid of getting involved and, and getting out and making a statement. In fact, she made a pretty strong statement of couple of, a couple of years ago, and this wasn't in the broadcast version of the story, but a couple of years ago, Pam Schenecker's son uh, had gone to school in Markazin with uh, a gun t-shirt supporting, you know, uh, the Second Amendment gun rights. Um, and I believe it was a, a a design on the shirt that looked that was the name of a bunch of different types of guns that came that all put together looked like uh, uh, some sort of semi-automatic rifle and the principal sent him home and said you can't wear that or you got to turn it inside out they ended up suing and going to federal court to get an injunction and they won the wisconsin uh, federal court issued an injunction against the school and said you have to let people wear pro-gun shirts as long as they're not inciting violence or inciting any sort of uh, or supporting, you know, illegal activity. You've got to let them do it. So they they not only sued, they won. She's politically active. And in this case, she started posting about her experience, getting these negative tests and a positive result on social media. And as you recall, around mid-April, that's when there was this ramp up in interest 
around reopening the state. Governor Evers' initial emergency order was set to expire April 24th. And he had announced, and, and his uh, uh, secretary-designee of the Department of Health Services had announced an extension of Safer at Home out till May 26th. And there was a lot of controversy. For those who wanted to reopen the state, reopen businesses, they were talking about organizing a protest in Madison. And, of course, there's also been talk about how much outside influence there was in organizing these types of protests. But Pam took it upon herself at that time. Remember, she got out of the hospital April 20th. The protest was April 24th. So four days after she got out of the hospital, she went to Madison to talk about her case. And she was posting about that in a forum for reopening Wisconsin. And it was in that forum that someone who knows me copied what she'd posted and said, Brian, can you look into this? Is this true? Because it was starting to gain some attention among like-minded followers who felt this was an example of an intentional inflation of the numbers, um, people who were already upset that the state was going to remain closed for at least another month. And, and this person just came to me and said, can you get to the bottom of this? Is it true? And in those cases, as reporters, we have to approach it with a combination of an open mind because you don't know where the facts are going to take you, but also with a healthy amount of skepticism, especially when you have political activists involved. Absolutely. I mean, with any story, we're going to try to get to the bottom of the facts. But when you know something's coming from a a, a, a biased perspective, and, and I just say biased because we know the protests, we know there was some strong uh, feelings about reopening the state and and you start to you know politics are involved anytime politics are involved there's a standard of of evidence that you've got to reach and the minimum i needed to be able to do was talk to the doctor um here's a person saying i had these three tests my first thought when you say healthy skepticism my first thought was why did you have three tests in the first place what would necessitate three separate tests and i initially thought that meant three separate visits to the hospital. Like, why do you keep going back and, and getting tested? This was all in this one hospital stay. But I knew I had to talk to Pam Scheneker, and then I had to, to really do a story, I had to know what the doctor's explanation was. So I contacted Pam, and, and I said, listen, I'd like to find out more about what you're saying. She spoke at the protest in Madison four days after she left the hospital, and she got up on a microphone and she told the whole story. She was also on a conservative talk radio show, Vicki McKenna's show, and she told her story there. And in both cases, she had audiences that welcomed the story. They gave her pats on the back. They gave her kudos for speaking out. But no one really asked critical questions about well, why, what happened here. Um, and, and I wanted to get to the bottom of it. So I told her when I reached out, I'm interested. I want to know what happened, but I need to see your records. I need to see the documentation, and I need to be able to talk to the doctor and she immediately sent me screenshots of the of some of the records the negative tests she blacked out names and things like that and, and other personal information but i could see there was what appeared to be some legitimacy to the fact that she'd had negative tests but i needed to see more than that and and that really resulted in a back and forth between the two of us that went on for a while as we tried to come to terms she was comfortable with in terms of opening up her medical history but me still being able to vet the story properly. And I think this is where we come into the weirdest coincidence I've ever seen in reporting a story as you're trying to talk to the doctor. So do you want to take us through what happened there? Because I remember getting a phone call from you going, 
I can't believe what just happened here. Yeah, the, the, something happened here that really isn't a part of the story other than the fact that it was the most remarkable uh, coincidence. Uh, it was rather uncomfortable. It still really is to this day. But, um, but before I tell you how that happened, we were going back and forth, Pam and I, we're going back and forth as to, I, I need a, a medical waiver to speak to the doctor. HIPAA prevents the doctor from answering questions. And so if I ask the doctor, why did you test her three times? Why did you still diagnose her as positive after three negative results? The response is going to be, I, I can't answer that because of HIPAA. So without a waiver, we couldn't do it. So it, initially she balked at that. She said, no, I'm not, I'm not going to give you access to my medical history. That's, that's too sensitive. And I said, well, well, you're the one telling your story publicly. So if you don't want us to look into it, it sort of raises some doubts about the veracity of what you're saying. Sure. And ultimately what we came to was an agreement that a limited waiver was all was needed. I don't need to know her whole medical history. I don't need to know her life story. And that turns out to be what she was really concerned about is opening up her entire medical history or medical chart to a reporter she didn't know. Which so I, we, we can understand. <laughs> I think that's reasonable. So we devised a limited waiver that only applied to that hospital stay from April 16th through April 20th. She signed the document that we provided her and she said, I'll give you a copy when you get here. And I thought, okay, that's fair. There's, I think... From the beginning, there were just some issues of, do we trust each other? She thinks I'm the media. She's from a political viewpoint that thinks the media is maybe going to twist her story, not tell the truth, that we're the quote-unquote fake news. So, And I'm not sure whether to trust if the story she's telling is everything she's saying. So there's, there's some trust issues at the outset. But we worked through that, and she agreed to the waiver. So we drive to Markison. And I'm with one of our photographers, Eddie Poser, a great guy. I love Eddie. He's a fantastic photographer. The most and, cheerful uh, human being I've ever met. Absolutely. And we had a great conversation on the way up. He, he loves stand-up comedy. I love stand-up comedy. So we're having this wonderful conversation on the way there. We get to the interview site and we interview uh, Pam Scheneker. And it's during the interview, she, she hands me the document just before the interview with the waiver. That's the first time I see the name of the doctor, but it doesn't really strike me as anything remarkable at the moment. We do the interview. The photographer shoots the entire interview. She then says, I have a recording of the doctor. I talked to him afterwards and asked him why he gave me this diagnosis. She sits down and she plays the phone recording and we listen. And Eddie is still shooting this interview. And then she shows me the medical records on her phone. And she's scrolling through them, and I'm trying to write down some notes. And I said, so the doctor, his name is, is Sam Poser. And it strikes me for a moment, Poser. And I look up at Eddie, who's shooting the, the, the video, and I said, huh, Poser, that's your last name. Funny. And he just smiles and doesn't say anything. We complete the interview, walk out, we get back to the car, and Eddie says, uh, Brian, just so you know, Sam Poser is my dad. And... I, I don't really know exactly how I reacted. I think I laughed. I think we both laughed because of the ridiculous coincidence that we've driven an hour and 20 minutes from the television station to go interview a woman who drove 45 minutes to another hospital to be treated by a doctor who turns out to be the father of the photographer who's shooting the interview with me. The photographer who you happened to be paired with that day. Who I happened to be paired with that day, who I hadn't worked with for a month. It was a remarkable situation, uncomfortable to say the least, but I, I want to say this about Eddie, first of all. He was such a professional. Even after he learned in the middle of the interview who we were talking about, he said nothing. He did his job. He, he, he finished what we were doing, and then the first moment he had to tell me, he told me. 
And from that moment forward, I said, you're off the story. And I wasn't sure what was going to happen here. I've never really run into this before, but certainly it's a conflict of interest for Eddie. Sure. And, and then and you're I weighing, sure, if, we, yeah. if we do the story, obviously he needs to be off of it. And we Correct. need to disclose that a person involved is related to someone on the Fox 6 team. And then if, if you don't do the story, then there's the thought of, well, are you protecting this person just because he's the dad of a coworker? That's what made this, I think, the most unusual situation beyond the coincidence was it did raise some serious journalistic ethics questions. Because, as you said, if we don't do the story, have I now not told this woman's very politically charged story because of you know, to, out of protection of someone related to one of our employees? Um and, and if I do tell the story, is there too much of a close connection? Is there a relationship there? I have no relationship with Dr. Sam Poser. Um, and, and so I, we decided ultimately, first of all, at that moment, Eddie was done with the story. We were supposed to go shoot more video that day, including exterior shots of the hospital where this all happened. And I said, we're not going to go. I, I can't have you go shoot video of your father's workplace. That's... So we we went back to, uh, came back to, to the Milwaukee area. I talked to our news director, Jim Wilson. He slept on it for a night. Ultimately, he determined that if it was a story before, it's a story now. Continue on with it as you would otherwise. And, and you know, we just have to remove Eddie from the process. And, and again, um, you know, Eddie's a remarkable young man and a, and a great colleague. And, and he, he said himself, I don't want to stand in the way of journalism. Um, but obviously a sensitive situation. So we decided let's move forward. And I reached out to Dr. Poser. And how did and that said, go? And he was, he, he understood, uh, he actually, initially he didn't mention his son's involvement, which he knew by then. I didn't mention it. We just went forward as though, uh, this was exactly what I thought it was from the beginning. I was reaching out to someone I'd never spoken to before. We've never talked before. Giving him, um, giving him a chance to respond to complaints. Absolutely. And I told him we had the medical waiver. I emailed that waiver to him. Initially, he said he still wasn't going to talk about this specific case because he's, uh, he used the term, I'm hippophobic. And that's not unusual. You've done this for many years, Amanda. You know, in, in the healthcare industry, doctors, nurses, they are so afraid of talking about patient information that even when they have permission to, a lot of times they just don't want to. Um, but ultimately, uh, we, we spoke. I said, I'd like to record the interview on the phone. He agreed. And as we talked, what began as generic uh, discussion morphed into more specific discussion of Pam Scheneker's case. So he did end up discussing her case, which he had permission to do. We have the, the medical waiver. Um, and, and ultimately, he, he said that he just felt in his professional judgment that the symptoms she had and, and the situation said this was COVID-19. So was he doubting the veracity of the tests? Yeah, and I was actually surprised at how, how explicitly he said that. Um, he had told Pam that in the call she played for us. Uh, and I thought, well, maybe with a news reporter, he'll be a little more cautious about how he says that. But he just said the tests have been not only unnecessarily painful, you know, those deep nasal swabs people have said are at least uncomfortable when they have to go way up in your nose and scrape for the material they need to do. The uncomfortable tests. Said, sounds not like a mild word for it. Well, I, I think it looks really bad when you see sort of like a, a, you know, an example of how far that swab goes. And I haven't been through one, so I can't speak from experience. I've heard from many people who've had the test who say, 
it's uncomfortable, but it's not as bad. It, it, it kind of, it feels weird. It tickles. It doesn't hurt. Um, but nonetheless, I haven't had one done, so, so I can't say. What I can say is the doctor said these have been unnecessarily painful and, or maybe he didn't use the word unnecessarily. He said they have been painful, but they've also not been accurate. And so he just doesn't believe the nasal swabs are accurate. Um, and so in spite of the repeated negative tests she was getting, he felt that his observations of her medical history, her chart, her symptoms, he felt convinced that she had COVID-19 and the negative test results didn't sway him from that. What is his belief that these tests aren't accurate based on? Well, so that was one of the, again, very interesting things that came up here. So when I interviewed Pam, she brought up that when he, actually, when he came in for the second test, which was the second day of her stay, he was in regular, he had a, you know, had a mask on, but he didn't have full PPE or anything, um, which would suggest he didn't at that point necessarily think that she was a COVID-19 positive patient, because if he really felt at that point she was, theoretically, he should have been in full PPE, but he wasn't. But on day four, when he came back in, to test her a third time, she says he was dressed head to toe in his PPE. And he said he was absolutely convinced she had it. And she said, well, I don't understand why. Why Why are you so sure I have this? And he said, well, have you read the story about this Broadway actor? When you, when you get out of here, I want you to Google this Broadway actor. And, and I thought, well, that's kind of a weird explanation. But in her phone call with him after the hospital stay, he again mentioned this Broadway actor um, and I still wasn't sure, well, who's he talking about? So when I called him, I asked him about his interpretation of what was going on. He, for a third time, mentioned this Broadway actor. Well, it turns out he was talking about a, a Canadian Broadway star named Nick Cordero. Nick Cordero, in early April, um, was actually, I think, in a coma uh, or maybe was placed into a medically induced coma with severe pneumonia and other complications, but had tested negative for COVID-19 twice. And on a third test, eventually tested positive. He also had such a severe case that he ended up having complications that resulted in amputation of his leg. And the news of the amputation happened to break on April 18th. Um, the third test that found him positive was was a week or so earlier, but on April 18th, news broke of this amputation. And in those news stories, of course, the, the stories mentioned the fact that he had tested negative twice and then positive the third time. It was the next morning, April 19th, that Pam Scheneker had her third COVID-19, or at least her third nasal swab, a test for COVID-19. So it seems as though the doctor must have been reading about this Broadway star having tested negative twice positive a third time, and had they only caught it earlier, maybe they could have prevented more severe complications. And perhaps he looked at Pam and thought, you know what, I'm just convinced you have it, and if I don't do what I think is right, you're going to be like that guy. And that seems to be sort of what was going on here, is he was erring on the side of caution and just felt the tests aren't catching this, but I think you have it. So from his perspective, she's not really going to suffer any harm by being positively diagnosed if in fact she's negative, but she might suffer harm if she's negatively diagnosed if in fact she's positive. That's exactly what he was saying is he felt the clinical presentation suggested it's better to err on the side of caution and treat her. Um, what still isn't clear though is when that third test came back negative 
and her health improved to the point that she was discharged from the hospital. Instead of her symptoms becoming worse, they got better. Um, and she was negative again, he still felt it necessary to diagnose her as a COVID-19 positive patient. And you might say, well, why does that matter? So who cares what the label is? She was treated, she got out, she feels better. She says it negatively impacted her in a couple of ways. One is because of that COVID-19 diagnosis, she says her primary doctor and other medical professionals wouldn't see her in person. And she has other health issues to deal with, including a heart issue. Um, so for a period of time, and it's not clear how long that period was, she says she wasn't able to go to the doctor and that bothered her. But it's clear that that's not the only thing that upset her because she did seem concerned about whether or not this reflects some sort of effort on the hospital's part or the doctor's part to diagnose her as something that would perhaps get them a, a greater insurance payment. Uh, she said that at the protest four days later, she raised the question, is this because maybe they get paid more? for a COVID-19 diagnosis. And of course that plays into the theories that these numbers are being artificially inflated. Do they get hospitals paid more? And, doctors. and I asked Dr. Poser that question and his answer was, I think they do. He says, I think the hospital might get something like, you know, $12,000 more for a, for a COVID patient uh, admission, uh, or maybe that was the amount they get. What I, I don't remember the exact numbers were. What I know is he acknowledged that he thinks there may well be a financial incentive for a positive diagnosis, but he insisted that was not what prompted him to diagnose. He said he did it simply because he felt that's what the symptoms said. Now that's still a question though that is a little bit iffy because I asked him repeatedly, okay, so what if the symptoms matter more than the lab test? What, were it, what was it about her symptoms specifically that told you she must have this disease. And each time I asked, he would go into sort of a longer story about, well, they've been saying in other cases around the country that the, it's not just the cough and it's not just fever, it's it's COVID toes. It's some of these other symptoms we've been hearing about. I said, I understand broadly, but what was it about her? And the one thing he pointed to was a loss of smell. During her stay, she says, Pam tells me that the doctor mentioned more than once that her sense of smell had come back and that that was a good sign. And she kept trying to correct him. Well, I never lost my sense of smell. But he says that was one of the things that happened was she had lost her sense of smell and then it returned. She insists there was confusion over that, that it had never happened. And in fact, that that same thing had happened when she was hospitalized back in January. And that's another interesting facet of all this because she's had so many health issues. Pam believes it's possible she may well have had COVID-19 when she had a much more severe case of something back in January that hospitalized her, she lost her sense of smell. She said it was, it was the symptoms were much, much more severe. Um, but at the time, no one was testing for it, at least not here in the United States. And so she was diagnosed back then with some other sort of virus and, uh, and, and released. This time she's convinced it was just the asthma. And that complicates things for one reason. Her doctor, Sam Poser, and others have said, if she just goes to get the antibody testing, it'll prove. Did she have it or didn't she? Well, the question now is, if she takes the antibody test and it shows that she had coronavirus, was it during this day or could it have been the January right. hospital visit? So that sort of complicates the evidence from that end of things. Um, but, but in the end, ultimately, Dr. Poser's take on this is he just felt in his professional judgment taking everything as a whole, 
she was COVID-19 positive and he didn't see any harm in erring on the side of diagnosing her that way. Did the fact that his son works at Fox 6 come up at any point in your interview with him? When we were done with the interview, uh, he, you know, we were essentially done with sort of formalities of of, ask, of me asking questions. He asked if I was aware of uh, his son uh, being in Markison with me, and I told him I was. And he just, he asked me what I thought of him. And I, I told him, as we I said earlier on the podcast, I think uh, his son Eddie is a, is a great guy, uh, an excellent colleague. He's a fantastic, hardworking photographer. Um, and uh, it, so we had that brief discussion. But as I said, I, it didn't come up in the course of the interview. And it shouldn't. It really has nothing at all to do with the facts of of the story, um, you know. And uh, it's just a remarkable coincidence and uh, sort of one of those journalistic ethical questions that we had to wrestle with. But I think we made the right call here because we wanted to get to the bottom of what happened to Pam Scheneker and and what happened happened regardless of who the doctor's son is. So you put the story together, you take it to air, what kind of reaction do you get after the story airs? This is always one of the things that I find uh, uh, both encouraging but troubling, which is <laughs> there are stories that have um, a certain level of interest because there's uh, a political undertone to them or there's just a hot topic. And I think diagnosis of COVID-19 is a hot topic, whatever your political stripe. But in this case, uh, so it was good. In this case, social media went nuts. I mean, we had hundreds and hundreds of comments, a lot of activity. In terms of our web team getting uh, a good amount of traffic, uh, which always looks good and the boss likes that, uh, it was great. I read some of the comments and, you know, uh, we all know social media sometimes can sort of go off the deep end of, of conspiracy theories and and uh, not always the most productive comments. So there are a lot of comments. I don't know how many of them were particularly meaningful, um, but uh, let's just say that it, there, it generated a f- more than a fair amount of buzz. Well, because it sounds a lot more intriguing to talk about a conspiracy theory behind a false positive diagnosis uh, it sounds much more intriguing to talk about that than it does to say, oh, this could have been a simple mix-up from the last time when she could have had COVID. Well, and, and, and I, I don't know that it's it means that anything she said here was wrong. I think, in fact, what I think is, is uh, really important to point out here is, as you said at the beginning, because of the nature of the way this tip came to us, I had to enter it with healthy skepticism. But at every step of the way, she had the documentation or stories she told me about what the doctor had said turned out to be true. Even things that sounded a little bit bizarre, like this whole Broadway star thing, she turned had out the to receipts. be accurate. She had the receipts. And and when we went to check and verify, we got verification. And that's why we did this story. That doesn't necessarily mean that the interpretation of that is one that uh, is always going to be accurate. And I will say this, and I'll give Pam credit for this. By the time we sat down and did the interview, she said, you know, I asked her, why do you think this happened? And she said, you know, at this point, I really don't know. I mean, four days afterwards, she's at a political protest. Maybe the emotions are flying high. And she says, you know, maybe it's because the doctors make extra money off this. Maybe they're inflating the numbers. By the time we got more information, and I think especially after she learned that the county had not counted her uh, her, her case among the total numbers, um, she was just left with a, I just don't know. I don't know why this happened, but I don't like it. She doesn't want it in her medical chart. She thinks it complicates other things. I can't speak to whether or not uh, that that's uh, something that's important or not for her to get out of her chart, but she thinks it is. And she's actually talked about suing to have that removed from her medical record. And she said she wants other people to know that 
Just because a doctor says something, just because they put something in your record doesn't mean you have to just take it. You can fight if you want to, and that was a message she wanted people to know beyond sort of the politics of it, just the idea that you don't always have to go with what one doctor says. A second opinion's okay, and, and, and you, can, you can fight uh, what's in the record if you find it important. So in the end, it sort of raises that question, Amanda, you know, what's the big takeaway here? And, and it's one of the reasons I interviewed a doctor from UW Health, the chief quality officer there. He was included in part of the story because I wanted to ask him, could this be happening to other people? Is this common that people are getting negative tests and coming out positive? And his take was, no, that would be extraordinarily rare, in fact, because, quite frankly, these tests, in his view, are accurate. They are at least 98% accurate in the ones that they're using at UW Health. Now, that's not the hospital Pam went to, but he said the type of test that's primarily in play here, 98 out of 100 times is going to be right. There might be two false negatives, but if you're tested twice or even three times, like Pam Scheneker, he said the chances that you are going to be in that group of two out of 100 each time gets smaller and smaller. And if you are for the doctor to then still diagnose you as positive, he said that circumstance is just extraordinarily rare. Hmm. All right. Well, thanks, Brian. That was a, a weird story, and it will be interesting to see if there are any follow-ups. Well, yeah, we, I, I've been watching to see if there's anything in the comments that suggests there's maybe more to this. It may just be a one-off. It may not be. But if we hear of others who have had similar experiences, we'll do as we did here. We'll look into them. We'll follow up. We'll let you know. And we are going to continue bringing you more frequent episodes of Open Record on Tuesdays and Thursdays starting next week as we continue to cover the COVID-19 pandemic. If there's a topic you want us to discuss, an issue you think we should investigate, please send us an email at theinvestigators at fox6now.com. And thank you, as always, to the people who make this podcast possible, producer Pete, Dave Machuda, Suzanne Barthel, and Sarah Smith. And please subscribe to Open Record if you haven't done so already. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Brian Polson. Have a great Memorial Day weekend. And remember, we'll be back with our next regularly scheduled episode on Tuesday. Tuesday.